Good evening. Welcome to This Week in Sustainability Twist. My name is Felicia Etzcorn, and my co-host is Jamie Ferguson. Hi, Felicia. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Arlene Bloom of the Green Science Policy Institute in the Department of Chemistry at UC Berkeley about flame retardants tonight. And the kind of brief overview, I'd like to talk a little bit about how flame retardants are thought to work, um, the chemical structure of these, um, why they're toxic, I, which Dr. Bloom knows quite a bit about, and why we don't need them, which she also will be able to tell us a lot about. Um, and then I want to talk about a little bit about polyurethane in particular as a foam that's part of furniture, including baby products, and a paper that Dr. Bloom published in 2011 in Environmental Science and Technology um, in 2011. So Dr. Bloom, will you introduce yourself? Uh, can we call you Arlene? We'll just call you Arlene. I much prefer that. Thank you, Felicia and Jamie. We will. We will. Um, we would like to hear your educational background and your, um, you know, how you got to this point, including you know your work as a graduate student. Oh my goodness! Well, that's a big order. Um, so I got a PhD in biophysical chemistry at Berkeley. I postdoced at Stanford where um, I did research, the first research finding intermediates in protein folding. And um, when I was postdocing, I was on an expedition in the Himalayas. I'm, I'm a mountain climber where um, America's leading young rock climber, who the first person to pioneer climbing the steep faces in Yosemite without using pitons because he was an environmentalist, fell to his death from a mountain in India. And I came back wanting to do something for the environment. And uh, at the time I thought proteins and intermediates and protein folding weren't important. It turns out they're very important, but I, I wanted to do something worthwhile. And um, Bruce Ames, who does something called the Ames test, it's a bacterial test for whether chemicals are likely to cause mutations in DNA. And if they are, they're likely to cause cancer. Um, he was on my PhD committee at Berkeley. So I asked him if he had some idea of something I could do to help the environment in honor of my friend who died climbing. And he said, can you look at the flame retardants in children's pajamas? I'm really worried about them. They're, they're brominated. Um, they're 10% of the weight of the pajamas. I think they get into the children. I think they could be harmful. And so um, it sounded a little bizarre, flame retardants, but I was sad my friend had died. I wanted to do something worthwhile. And so we found a little girl whose mom had bought the little girl's pajamas in the UK and had never worn the treated pajamas that most American kids wore and put her in the treated pajamas and collected her urine. And the first morning that she wore the pajamas, there were um, Trist breakdown products that were known carcinogens in the little girl's urine. And every day she wore the pajamas, the level went up. And when she stopped wearing them, the level went down. So, they, so in America, chemicals that go into our mouths like foods, drugs, and pesticides are regulated. 
but other chemicals like flame retardants really aren't. So then we ran a mutagenicity screen on this molecule, brominated tris, and it was one of the strongest mutagens we'd ever seen. And so we were very worried. Um, well, kind of a, a good story is then I got invited to go attempt Mount Everest. It was the second American expedition and no American woman had even tried Everest. So I was writing my paper <laughs> about the tris and pajamas while I was climbing Mount Everest and sent it from about 24,000 feet Wow! to base camp. And uh, we were the bicentennial expedition. We reached the summit in October of 1976. In January of 1977, uh, our paper was, was published as a lead article in science. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the subtitle of the paper was um, that children pajamas contained a flame retardant that seemed to be cancer causing and should not be used. And that's very strong for, you know, most scientific papers end with people saying more study is needed. And so we hadn't done that much study and we just went ahead with, you know, these two experiments and made, you know, a really, really strong, strong statement um, that um, no, you know, that flame retardant shouldn't be used in kids' pajamas. And in those days, three months after, and then we publicized our, our you know, we, we were on all three TV networks in those days. And then three months later, um, the Consumer Product Safety Commission banned Trist-treated children's garments. So that was how things should be, right? You write the paper, you call for action. What happened then is brominated truth was banned. Um, and then I went and bought lots of kids pajamas and extracted the chemical to see if they still had brominated truths and mostly they didn't, but they had chlorinated truths. Which is just as bad. <laughs> and we did more mutagenicity screens. It was equally a mutagen, a suspected carcinogen. Um, it was also removed from kids pajamas. We wrote another article in Science calling for that. And it was also removed from kids' pajamas. But what we didn't know that is really important for the story is they stopped using it in pajamas, but they kept using it other places like furniture right. and foam for children's products. Um, but we didn't know that. Um, but what that's an example of is what we call a regrettable substitute. So it's very expensive for industry to change how they do a whole process. So if a chemical is banned or phased out, um, the most common thing to do is to replace it with something that's nearly a drop-in replacement. It's yep. similar in structure, function, and toxicity. And that is what's called a regrettable substitute. So after years of research and advocacy, you know, brominated tris is removed, it's replaced with chlorinated tris, and that also turns out to be a carcinogen, and so it goes. Um, and so... I would say the precautionary principle, which is an easy way of thinking of it, if there's storm clouds, take your umbrella. <laughs> and in this case, if brominated tris is harmful, um, maybe don't replace it with chlorinated tris. You know, and, right. and we like to think about whole classes or families of chemicals. Maybe I will explain that now. There's a um, there's only one law in America that regulates chemicals before they're out in the environment. Once they're out there, there's Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, but once they're out there, you can't bring them back. So that's called TOSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act. 
And when it passed, 62,000 chemicals were grandfathered. And that includes brominated and chlorinated tris. It includes asbestos. 10,000 people a year die of asbestos disease and the EPA has not been able to regulate it. I think they might finally be able to, we hope. Um, so what do you do about all these chemicals? And because just regulating one takes years of science and advocacy, and then it's replaced with something almost identical. So at our Institute, we came up with the idea of thinking about chemicals in classes or families. And we came up with six classes or families that contain most of the harmful chemicals in everyday products. And one of those is flame retardants. Another one is um, PFAS, which we could talk about another time. And so I would encourage people if they go to our website, sixclasses.org, S-I-X-C-L-A-S-S-E-S, um, they can watch a four minute video on each of the six classes and an intro. So in 28 minutes, they can learn about most of the harmful chemicals in everyday products, where they're used, um, the health problems they cause and how to reduce their exposure. So I always recommend. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed those videos. And I especially like the fact that you put the very simple, explicit recommendations for the consumer at the end of each of these short, they're very short videos and they're very informative. Um, I so often from, from people, you know, even my son get this, everything's toxic, everything's carcinogenic, you know, and that is not the case. And what we really are trying to do here on Twist is to inform the consumer about what is toxic, what's not toxic, and, you know, that we can learn the distinctions between these. And so I think um, I, I will put a link to the um, six video, sixclasses.org and also to the Green Science Policy Institute page where you can get, you can get them from there as well. Um, okay, so I wanted to have a, a quick question or comment. Um, the, the ACS uh, chapters, like student ACS chapters, undergraduate chapters, now, nowadays they, um, they have a category for, did you do a green chemistry activity um, this year? And you know, there's a little award associated it could be, uh, you know, if, if you wanted to promote those or to talk to the ACS Green Chemistry Institute about maybe making a, a, a public outreach activity. That's a great idea. If you wanted to send me the name of a person, okay, that would be good. Yeah. Oh, David Constable, right? David Constable at the ACS GCI. Um, he just spoke. Also, Jamie and I have been participating in these monthly um, green chemistry connections. Um, they're yeah, we could we could suggest them to 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 have you have on. Arlene on. Yeah, because because that that's a group of uh, chemistry educators that are looking to kind of pool resources and create more green chemistry educational materials. Um, and so, you know, and some of the online labs that people have been sharing have been related to, you know, uh, green chemistry, but certainly the, the, the videos sound like a great thing to do an, a virtual lab out of even, you know, for an organic class. But anyway. No, actually, like at the University of Colorado in Boulder, there's a class where they do one class a week and uh -huh. the students write papers and reports. So the six classes 
well, it's a whole semester, but anyway, it's there's a whole class, a whole, um, I think it's an environmental engineering class based on it. Would you um, be open to like screenings of them with um, discussions like Q&A run oh, by? Sure. I, the more people use them, the better. They're okay. completely, they're completely in the public domain. And you know, I, I, what I, because people ask me to speak at green chemistry meetings and I'm like, what I'm doing isn't green chemistry, but it leads to the need of green chemistry. So if right. people discover this, yeah, because um, we work with big purchasers, and if they discover how harmful these chemicals are, then they need green chemistry. And in fact, that the chemicals that are in the class, we don't say you should never use them. Like PFAS are, you know, useful for some functions, mm -hmm. but we say, are they really necessary? And, you know, you should use them only if they're necessary, and then you should start looking for green chemistry solutions. So mm -hmm. I think the classes funnel people into the need for green chemistry. Anyway, we should talk about flame retardants. Okay, so so now I want to uh, talk about um, just the chemical, the basic chemical structure of tris and the trichloro analog. So these are what are called phosphates. So this is a phosphorus as the central atom, and then they have four oxygens around them. And then on three of the oxygens, there are these alkyl groups. That means, um, Jamie and I have talked about this before, it's sort of like gasoline. It's the greasy part of the molecule. And then they have bromines or chlorines and usually six of them so two on each of the the greasy side chains so halogens i want to talk about halogens a bit because i, I don't think people know what halogens are and we've been talking about chlorine and bromine and fluorine and these these are three elements that are on the far right hand of the periodic table. And they're, well, they love electrons. They hold on to electrons tightly, but they also can form um, free radicals. So reactive free radicals. And we talked about that a bit when we talked about ozone depletion um, with refrigerants before. So I'm trying to connect this to our previous podcast. Okay. So, so the way um, it's proposed that these um, chlorinated and brominated phosphates work is that they, um, they suppress the flame, well, they smother it essentially by um, creating, before it actually bursts into flame, um, you have like these free radical chlorine atoms and bromine atoms from from the thermal heat, breakdown of from the heat it must be yeah. yeah and and then those atoms suppress the oxygen probably by reacting with oxygen atoms and therefore it sort of smothers the fire because the oxygen can't get to it so that's one mechanism that they think it it works by and then Arlene wants to talk about pentabromodiphenyl ether, um, PBDE. And PBDE is, has these 
brominated aromatics. And we've talked again about aromatics. Uh, I can't remember what context that was in, but the carbon-bromine bond, the carbon in an aromatic ring and the bromine, it's really stable. Um, and that's bad because these things are highly persistent in the environment and they're also fat soluble. So once you get it into your system, it's really hard to get it out. And um, so Arlene, you wanna tell us about pentabde or PBDE. Yeah, so little did I know when I was working on the kids' pajamas that most of the furniture, 5% of the weight of the foam is a um, brominated diphenyl ether. And um, as you said, the car you know, the carbon bromine bond, the carbon fluorine bond, the carbon chlorine bond, they're not naturally occurring in any mammalian systems. And our bodies do not know how to break them down or metabolize them. Uh, they're very strong bonds. So they end up in our body fat and they just stay there and they build up and they cause problems. And in retrospect, the fact that PBDEs were like 5% of the weight of foam in furniture. And indeed, when we studied some products up to 13% of the weight of like a baby changing pad was um, this Penta BDE. Um, and almost all the use was in the US and Canada to um, treat furniture foam. And when you look at the structure, if you write it down, you'll see it's halfway between a PCB, which is known to be cancer causing and persistent and a dioxin. And it's halfway in between. So if, if PCBs and dioxins are known to be highly toxic, you, you know, you shouldn't only work with them like in a fume hood with lots of protective gear. And then halfway between and structured, you have a PBDE which is 5% or 13% of the weight of the foam and consumer products. It's also really easy to imagine that when the PBDE is in a fire, that it would close down that other ring and make a dioxin. Dioxins and furans, exactly. When you burn them, you get high levels of dioxins and furans. And in fact, firefighters have very high levels of the kinds of cancer associated with dioxin and furan exposure. And they fight fires, you know, in buildings where there's lots of these flame retardants. PBDEs in the plastic around television cases are 15% of the weight. So if you uh. plastic, you get 15% of the weight is uh, a PBDE. And that PBDEs have been phased out, but the it's now an ethane instead of an ether, another regrettable substitute. So our TVs used to be 15%, uh, the polybrominated diphenyl ether. And as that has been phased out, the ethane goes up. So now they're polybrominated diphenyl ethane. Um, and, and I was gonna say these molecules are called semi-volatile, which means they're coming out of products and they're heavy and they drop into dust. So like the more people who watch TVs in a household when the TV gets warm, the PBDs come out of the plastic. 
And with couches, <sighs> they're always coming out of the foam. So the models of exposure are people get dust on their hands, they eat a sandwich, they eat PBDEs, and also the chlorinated flame retardants also are semi-volatiles. And it's really sad to like cats that groom their fur have like 10 to 100 times higher levels than people. But the really sad thing is that children who, um, they toddlers, you know, who crawl in the dust, they have three to 10 times higher levels of these brominated and chlorinated flame retardants than their parents do. And sometimes as much as 100 times higher. And these chemicals are neurological and reproductive toxicants. So putting, you know, it seems like the stupidest thing in the world if you can imagine to make our furniture 5% by weight or more. I think it's fair to say that it is the stupidest thing in the world. So, so that's a good transition to talking about why we don't need to use flame retardants of any kind in, in furniture, foam, child's pajamas, baby changing pads. Uh, the reason that it was in our furniture was a calf. So with flame returns, it's all about what is your standard. If there's a legal standard, people have to meet it. And the legal standard that we used in the US starting in about 1975 was called Technical Bulletin 117, TB 117. And if people look at their furniture, there'll probably be a tag that says that under the central cushion. And this standard turned out to be a really bad standard. It required the foam inside a furniture to withstand a small open flame for 12 seconds. But the fact is that if you imagine dropping a candle on your couch, the fabric will burn first, you'll have a big flame, and then the foam will burn right away. And if it has these flame returns, as you notice, you'll get lots of dioxins and furans. You also get lots of smoke and uh, actually a more dangerous fire. Um, so by putting flame returns in the foam, a lot of studies have showed that there's no safety benefit. So we actually realized that the best thing is to stop the fire in the fabric so it never reaches the foam. And uh, most fires are smoldering fires caused by cigarettes and space heaters. And you can stop smoldering fires in fabric just by the makeup of the fabric without using flame retardants. So what's a good fabric? Most synthetics, leather, if you, you know, leather won't, if you drop a cigarette on leather or most synthetics, it turns out that natural things like linen um, uh, do not resist smoldering fires. So the story is that we decided to change the standard so that it would stop fires in the fabric, the smoldering fires. And um, this was a California standard, but California is a big market. So it was followed across all of the US and Canada. And when we tried to change the standard, um, the flame retardant producers did huge lobbying campaigns. So it was documented they spent $23 million in Sacramento preventing the state of California to change to a standard that would uh, increase fire safety by stopping smoldering fires in the fabric without the use of flame retardants. 
and they made front groups called things like Californians for Fire Safety and Citizens for Fire Safety, but they were just the three manufacturers of the flame retardants. So they really wanted to keep flame retardants in furniture and baby products, even though it was safer, both in terms of fire safety and health, not to have them. Um, so finally, we did, uh, well, we, well, here we are, we, we, you know, we, we wrote a number of papers, we looked at 100 baby products and discovered that 85 of them had flame retardants on the same tryst we'd gotten out of kids' pajamas, the pentabrominated diphenyl ether, as I said, it levels up to 13% of the weight of the foam. Um, we also looked at furniture and found again that most furniture across the US had very high levels in the furniture. Um, we wrote scientific consensus statements where we got 200 scientists to sign a statement and published it and did a, did a, lot, of, a lot of communication. And then we also worked with trade associations with industry when the furniture manufacturers discovered that the flame retardants um, were so toxic that they had no idea. And um, they knew that they didn't work because they did fire testing, but they didn't realize how harmful they were to health. So with, with everybody's support, we were able to, ah, and a lot of communication. The, the Chicago Tribune did an incredible series that won all kinds of awards. And uh, the, the subtitle was, was a deceptive campaign by industry brought toxic flame retardants into our homes and our bodies and the chemicals don't even work. And that's the problem. Again, a standard that just puts chemicals in foam really doesn't work. But when the standard changed um, to a new standard called TB117-2013, which is what you'd find on your couch now, if you look, you'll find a label and it'll have check contains no added flame retardants. Um, couches covered in leather or covered in synthetics were naturally smolder resistant, but a company like Ikea, where they're cover the couches are covered in cotton and linen, they had to make um, a thin interliner to put between the cotton and the foam because cotton does not, cotton is more flammable um, and, and does not resist a smoldering fire. So, so that, but that made um, the furniture safer. And I was given to understand that cotton didn't burn as well as polyester. You, you want the fabric to not to resist so this is getting a little technical there's okay. something called smolder fires which are cigarettes and space heaters and then there are open flame fires which are like um a candle a candle right and um so if if you there aren't that many open flame fire dusts because sure. um they're fairly rare it's like you have to hold a match or a lighter to your your couch. Mm -hmm. So most fires in furniture are smoldering fires and smoldering fires, a cigarette won't burn your synthetic on, you know, I mean, there's a standard that everybody who makes a couch has to show that a smoldering, a smoldering cigarette won't burn through the mm -hmm. fabric and light the foam. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So a, cig a cigarette will burn through um, cotton or linen. I mean, it's for sure because IKEA, I know mm -hmm. they yeah. had to do a bunch of engineering. And in fact, mm -hmm. I'm really good. IKEA was so, I'm really good friends with IKEA because they hated having to use flame retardants. And they used to say that they use the highest health and safety standard of any country, except for flame retardants are only required in 
um, the US and the UK and they would only use them there. And when we started getting the standard changed, they would send someone from IKEA. They'd never gotten involved outside of Sweden and we always would have someone from IKEA with us. They were our strongest supporters. That's fantastic. Because they so hated having to use the flame retardant. And when the standard changed, they were so excited they wouldn't have to use them. And then it took them an extra six months. They had to develop this barrier fabric. So with their cotton, because their cotton was not smolder resistant. Mm -hmm. So I, I, yeah, but they did. So they developed a barrier and they're fine. I mean, this was, this all happened in 2014, 2015. So, so this may not be that relevant to the, the flame retardant story, but, but polyurethane foam, I, I, I'm, uh, it's my understanding that it's really bad when it burns because it has a high nitrogen content. So a urethane is two nitrogens bonded to a carbon, and then the carbon in the middle is double bonded to an oxygen. And that's what a urethane is. And um, polyurethanes, when they burn, create a lot of nitrogen oxides, which are really toxic and really bad for the firefighters. Um, so that's why you want to stop the fire in the fabric. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want it to get to the polyurethane. So, so po I wonder. Polyurethane plus five or 10% flame retardants is a very unhealthy mixture. Oh, terrible. And the foam industry actually hated adding the flame retardants. They were so happy when they didn't have to. They stopped overnight. So I have a question just about how this came to be. Is there is there any story of any other high volume chemical, this high volume in this many consumer products that like how did how did so many industries get convinced that this was necessary? in the first place. The flame retardant industry, you know, it's sort of crazy. I took 26 years off from science from 1980 to 2006. And when I came back, I learned about the flame retardants in couches, but they were on the verge of making a new standard that all of our pillows and mattress pads and comforters were going to have to be flame retardant. And we actually stopped it. And that's where pregnant women sleep. Pregnant women are the most vulnerable to these chemicals. Um, because the chemicals cause neurological and reproductive impairments, you know, in the fetus. Mm -hmm. So, and then they also were going to have a standard that all the plastic around all the electronics in the world was going to have to be flame retardant. And it would, it's about 15 to 25% of the weight. So these standards, the, the, yeah, so it's all about standards and the chemical industry works really hard to make new standards that will require the use. And when they make the standard, then everybody has to follow it. It's a legal requirement. So um, it's the chemical, it's the, it's the manufacturers of the flame retardants that are driving this, not the- Right, so it's-, it's Not the furniture manufacturers, they don't wanna have to- Now we had, now those Albemarle, Chemtura, Israel Chemicals Limited, they're the flame retardant manufacturers. No, we had, we were trying in California to change the standard and all the furniture industry, foam, fabric, juvenile products industry, firefighters, scientists, parents, everybody was on our side, not wanting to change to increase fire safety without flame retardants. And on the other side were Californians for fire safety and a fortune in money. 
and um, that's who um, a lot of our fine legislators work voted for. I mean, like this is the most scandalous stories. This is a series that came in second for the Pulitzer and won every award. And I, I had pitched this to these Chicago Tribune reporters who were Pulitzer Prize winners. And they came to one of these insane hearings where um, everybody voted for the chemical industry. Yeah. Uh. So it was, yeah. So that's kind of the yeah, so that this series playing with fire, you, you can learn, <laughs> you can learn the sort of detail. Yeah, it seems like this whole like this whole subject would make a great like upper upper you know senior or junior level semester course in sort of chemistry and society. Um, yeah, there's a there's Maggie. That's what Maggie Maggie Bump is teaching a, a class on that. She created a class about that at Tech. Anyway, carry on. Um, I want to come back to, um, well, first, I just want to point out that you, you have these wonderful videos. I think they're on your website. I'm not sure somewhere where I've seen them, but side-by-side -side comparisons of the same chair with flame retardants, without flame retardants, and they both go up in flames, basically the same right. rate. Um, it, it doesn't, the flame retardants don't work. They're unnecessary. So, um, well, it's I just want to standard that doesn't to, work. In other words, the flame retardants okay. do work. The standard says that a piece of bare foam won't burn for 12 seconds. And they work. You add the flame retardant, your piece of bare foam doesn't burn for 12 seconds. So you can't say they don't work. Okay. Standard doesn't work. If you take okay. that foam and you put it in a chair with a fabric around it, it, yeah, it Smoldering. doesn't, it doesn't prevent the yeah. fire. So, so it's different. So you don't say the, it's, it's really, it's really all about, it's all about the standards. The standard. And the standard was created by really well, originally, I think it was pressure. created, you know, with with good things in mind, but then it, it turned out to be um, you know, when it turned out that it really wasn't good, then the flame retardant producers, you know, were defending it to the best of their ability. So I just wanted to say this is the website, so um, sixclasses.org, where you can see. That where people can go to watch these four minute videos, which it's quite accurate. Like the flame retardant one really does cover the information quite accurately. Um, so I have, I have one more question then about the triphenylphosphate because there's no chlorine, no bromine. And, and that was like, I read an EPA white paper back when I was writing that section of my book um, that, you know, that was proposed to be a good substitute. Do you know anything about it? Yeah, I can pull up a paper I wrote. Oh. Without the chlorine and bromine, are they still as carcinogenic or what's the toxicity? They have other mechanisms, but the overall toxicity is, um, unfortunately, pretty similar. 
it's different mechanisms huh. of toxicity. Um, but I do have a, a paper um, that was published in ESNT Letters um, that goes in, in great detail to all the reasons why it's not an improvement. Of which I am actually okay. the first author. Okay. Think I would. I, they made me the first author because it was it was my idea to do the paper. But again, I'm not so good at the details. So organophosphate ester flame returns. Are they a regrettable substitution for PBDEs? But but did, did they specifically address the the triphenylphosphate because that's different from the chlorinated and you know you're right uh, they it's a lot of this is around the chlorinated and brominated but some is around the non-halogenated so I think you know they're not as bad perhaps but what we say is if you don't need them why use them <laughs> and a lot of people are going from the organohalogens to the organophosphate so this, that was the purpose of, so my paper is really the purpose. So that's the purpose of this paper. Yeah. So do you think we're moving away from, from uh, like a societal, uh, you know, thought that we need flame retardants in consumer products in general? Like, or would you, would you say that, uh, that 20% of the consumer products that were chock full of uh, flame retardants have now been removed or or 50% or like, I mean, how big of a problem is? Standards changed for children's products. It used to be all children's products with foam, nursing pillows, high chairs, strollers had to have flame retardants. The standard changed, so they're no longer required, so they're no longer. What year was that? Uh, that's at TB117, 2013, like 2014, pretty much. Yeah, okay. The supply chain takes away. Uh, the standard changed for furniture. So that's good. The standard's called TB117-2013. And it took... And that covered both the children's products and the furniture? And okay. after we, the standard was changed, the flame retardant industry sued the state of California saying they didn't have the right to do that. And you know they were the big protectors of fire safety and they lost the suit, but it was expensive made them not popular in California. Yeah. Um, at that point, it just said you didn't have to use flame returns, you had a choice. But since then, um, there's been a more recent law saying that flame returns cannot be used in furniture, children's products, and a whole range of products in California. I think one's on the governor's desk like that right now in Massachusetts. So, um, mm -hmm. So they're, they're pretty wow. much out of furniture and children's products. Television cases are the big one that we're... That's your next, that's what you've got your site set on right now? Well, it's really hard. I, it's really hard because the TV, people who make them are in Korea and Japan. And we like to bring all the manufacturers together with the scientists to understand why they shouldn't be doing this. And the, t the electronics industry is really challenging. So um, we'd like to, but we haven't. Mm. Yeah. So now that there's no flame returns in your furniture, your television case is probably the biggest source. So it's really a question of. Yeah, except, except that so many of us bought mattresses, new mattresses in that mattresses, window between mattresses 2007. Mattresses aren't usually a problem. 
So this is complicated. Mattresses oh. have a much more severe flammability mm. standard. Remember furniture, it was 12 seconds with a small flame. Mattresses have 20 minutes with a blowtorch. And so putting flame returns in the foam doesn't help. They have to wrap the whole mattress in a fireproof barrier. And the barriers don't have to, they're just things that aren't gonna burn. So they don't have, and they don't have the bad flame retardants. So most mattresses do not have flame retardants. They could, they used to before just cause the foam all had it. So they'd be left, they'd be left over but it wasn't really required. Um, so yeah, so mattresses should be, should be okay. Children's mattresses weren't okay because they were on the list of children's products that required it. So children's mattresses tended to have it and adult mattresses. So what should we do? You know, what should people do with their old children's mattresses and changing pads and just throw them away? That's not, not give them to people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big problem. And it's a real problem. There's a, don't, don't give them to goodwill. There's, well, you don't want to give them to goodwill. There's a big environmental justice issue because those of us who can afford it can buy nice new furniture and children's products with no flame retardants and no PFAS. And so furniture right. has three owners of up to 12 or 15 years each. And so that means student communities, low income communities could still be exposed. So it's, you really... We right. had a foam swap where we encouraged people to swap out the foam so you can get your cushions restuffed with safe foam. And then if you give your couch to the Goodwill, it's a safe couch. It wasn't very successful. People didn't really want to do that. That was one of our less successful efforts. And we had a NSF grant mm -hmm. to try to figure out what to do with all the old toxic couches. And that was another one of our unsuccessful efforts. We just couldn't. It's too expensive. It's too much energy yeah. to take a couch apart and melt the foam and precipitate yeah. out and the flame. And it's the same with There's transformers. No value to it. It's the same with transformers. Transformers are so diffused across the country, and they have these polybrominated di diphenyls um, or biphenyls. Um, in the in the transformers, I think it's PCB. They really. Polychlorinated, yeah, yeah, which PCBs. are terrible. Polychlorinated yeah, right. biphenyls, right. Really bad stuff. And they're all over the landscape. And so they, the only way they get replaced is, you know, when when one goes bad, starts leaking, then they can use the safer, the new stuff, which is soybean oil and, and cellulose now that they use. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, PCBs are, are you know, poison. I can't remember. There's some factory in South Carolina that was leaking and poisoning all these poor dolphins that have super high levels. Uh, Honeywell, Honeywell. Yeah. So, so I have a question about, um, about the connection between these compounds and cancer. Um, I read a book uh, called Tom's River um, I, f I forget what, uh, who, the, who the author was, but it was, it was a really great book on the history of, um, of the chemical industry and also of epidemiology and, and, you know, kind of presented cancer epidemiology as this really tough thing to demonstrate conclusively. So I wondered, 
um, of the six classes of chemicals, um, do you know which ones have uh, cancer clusters, you know, or can you even link a cancer cluster to a consumer? No, I you know, think that's too hard a, because a, people move around and they're exposed to so many things. Cancer clusters are really hard to link. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. way hard. I, that book is on my list. I yeah. have a copy and I, I want to read it. It's, I've heard it's fantastic. But, you know, the person who recommended the Tom's River book to me is a scientist for DuPont, which just blows me away, showing what a good environmentalist he is, because DuPont, you know, has just poisoned the world with PFAS. But he did recommend it to me and I bought it and I will read it. I mean, the upshot of it is this was a town that was not, you know, um, the, the town that you think of for environmental justice uh, issues. It, it was upper or middle class, you know, America um, and uh, lots of families of chemists um, who lived in the town and, and the town had several uh, instances, several different ways that a lot of people would have been exposed to things in the groundwater. Um, and so, you know, A, they, they had means, they were middle-class people, they had documentation of, you know, things, uh, what got dumped where, when, or, or at least a pretty decent, you know, uh, amount of information. And it's still, that in, in trying to like conclu conclusively prove it, they spent so much money and got, you know, so, so little conclusive, you know, really statistically hard. meaningful proof, uh, you know, it, it just, it made me think like, wow, how does anybody go about proving their case? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's, I don't think that's how you do it. A civil action is very similar if you know that story. And the lawyer for them ended up being the one from the civil from a civil action. Oh, the same guy! Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. He even he you know he even like knew how to shepherd it through like so that they would people wouldn't shut. Yeah, I mean he got he got the industry to work with the communities oh, more good. so than what happened in Massachusetts because because of that. But it still it just made you realize how hard it is to prove that sort of thing. So this just brings us back to the whole idea that prevention is where it's at, that we need to understand the toxicology. We've got to know what's toxic to keep it out of our products. And so that's where Arlene Bloom's work with the Green Science Policy Institute comes in is telling us, get this stuff out of our products, you know, um, and I, I'm going to encourage everybody again to go to their website. And again, I'll put a link in our show notes um, to your website. But there's really a need for green chemistry to design products that with all the knowledge that we now have about the chemistry that, you know, these organophosphates, the chlorinated, brominated, flame retardants, they're not necessary um, because of the way the standard is written. It's, just, it's all about the standards, right? yeah. It's all about the standard because of the way they did the testing for, for you know, the way they required the testing um, 
it had to be smolder proof. And that is that problem has been solved by um, having a barrier between or the, you know, um, synthetics. I hate to say this after our clothing episode where we, Jamie and I were really down on synthetics um, because they're plastic uh, and plastics end up in the ocean. So for entirely different reasons, we, we would really prefer like Ikea to use non-synthetics, but Ikea puts a synthetic barrier, is that right? Between the foam and the... I think it's a thin polyester barrier. Uh-huh. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's hard to get away from yeah. plastic. Yeah. So it, it, it is so complicated. Really I don't really want to start getting into smolder and open flame, but that's the... <laughs> yeah. But but no, I think I think you know our 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 audience can understand the difference between a smolder test and an open flame test, and I think we've we've covered that pretty well. So um, I I think that this was really interesting, and thank you so much for spending the time with us, Arlene. It was really great. Um, yeah, it's awesome to meet the person who wrote the paper about. <laughs> the flame retardants. <laughs> well, that, you got to see my yeah. more recent flame retardant paper on organophosphates. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometime uh, if I, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to ask you for a reading list or something like that, if you were going to turn this into an upper level class, um, but I don't do that in email. Well, I could put you in touch with the woman um, in Boulder who has done a class just on this. And I'm sure she'd be happy. Shelly Miller, sure. I think is her share name. Sure, I mean, if, if I'm... Yeah, share it with me too, because um, Maggie Bump would be yeah. interested for her so upper level has, class, Science well, and Society. She has developed a class um, using it or, you know, and I think a lot of people do just a year, you know, just a lecture on it as opposed to a whole semester. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I just am so, you know, blown away that it got uh, adopted at such scale by so many different industries and that that was, well, no, well, uh, the negative that flame retardants got adopted in but the first they, place and that that was, and that that was really driven by lobbyists writing stand, lobbyists encouraging standards or? Well, no, it's, complicated. The standards, I think, were in many cases written. They were written in the 70s and nobody really asked. It sounded good. Let's put flame. There's lots of fires. Let's put flame retardants in things. And nobody asked, do they provide a benefit or are they harmful? And then, but they were very profitable. And then as it began to be discovered yeah. how harmful they were, um, the flame retardant industry, you know, started this flame retardant saves lives, you have to use them. And then we started working with fire scientists and figure out that many of the standards weren't good and um, tried to change the standards, which is really hard. We have not been successful in all cases at all. I mean, those are some successes. Um, so then it became the flame retardant industry versus everyone else with them having a lot of money. 
So it isn't like people decide they're going to use flame retardants. It's there's a legal requirement and then they do. Like right now, back in the 70s, I was like, you don't need flame retardants in mountain tents. And I think we're finally getting them out. But right, you know, high altitude tents are flame retardant. And of course, it just makes it less healthy and flame retardants in the environment, you know, and if a high altitude tent starts burning, you're not going to get hurt, you know, so anyway, but it's not, it's more, it was, I think it was not done with malice, but as we learned, yeah, no. And then you just created a, you, you just created an industry that had a vested interest and then it was just momentum and they're very profitable. They cost almost nothing. And once you have a law, those three companies have a monopoly and they can charge as much as they want. So the bromine comes from the Dead Sea. It's really cheap and uh, they make a lot of money. So they have a lot of money for lobbying. <laughs> so that's the sad oh. thing. Oh, it's an amazing story. Well, it, it's wonderful though, that the laws are changing, that the standards are being changed and, and that you've had so, you've devoted so much of your energy to getting these changes in place. And I'm, I'm really grateful for your work. It's fantastic. Our guest today was Arlene Bloom of the um, Green Science Policy Institute. And um, I'll just say my good, good night. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Arlene. <laughs> well, thank you. Good night. So I, I'm struggling to understand this. So nylon, and polyester have significantly higher limiting oxygen index. So that means that they don't ignite as fast, right? Right. So the limiting oxygen index to define it for listeners is the minimum concentration of oxygen uh, in the in the atmosphere around the material uh, that is required to have it ignite, ignite at its ignition temperature. And so if you have a lower LOI, that means you don't require as much oxygen in that local environment around the fabric for it to combust. Now, cotton has a higher LOI, uh, sorry, Cotton has a lower LOI. Lower, yeah. Cotton has a lower LOI because it doesn't require so much oxygen in the air around it because there's a lot of oxygen in the molecular structure of cotton, of cellulose. Right. So, so cellulose is composed of sugar. Um, cotton is cellulose and it's composed of glucose monomers that are linked together into the polymer that is called cellulose and sugars have one oxygen for every carbon in the molecule. So, so cellulose also has one oxygen for every carbon. So it's already heavily oxidized. And that and so we, oh, go ahead. means it doesn't need as much oxygen to ignite is what we get from that. As combustion, is an organic compound plus oxygen goes to water and carbon dioxide. And when something is burning, it is therefore, you know, the organic thing that is burning is consuming oxygen in its local environment. So if you're consuming that oxygen, 
more oxygen from the air has to move into the vicinity to replace what has been consumed for the burn to keep going. So if you don't need oxygen to diffuse to the flame so fast, then it's, it's more flammable. If you need more oxygen to come in, then it's less flammable. So because cotton has more oxygen in its molecular structure, that makes it easier to, um, to kick off and sustain a, a burn. Well, I don't, I don't know about sustaining, but to ignite. At least the aspect of it that requires oxygen diffusing in. Yeah. Would, so, would but that easier. that's also so. So we're we're talking about um, a paper by Charles Yang, Qingyang He, Richard Leon Lyon, and Yuan Hu called "Investigation of the Flammability of Different Textile Fabrics Using." Microscale combustion calorimetry, which is kind of cool. They they're doing this on a very small scale and getting all these really nice um, quantitative parameters about flammability of different fabrics. And this was published in Polymer Degradation and Stability, 2010. Um, so it was before the change in the um, the law. The, the regulation about the flammability of particularly baby products that we were mm -hmm. talking about. Um, so in this paper, they talk about the limiting oxygen index that we were just discussing. And, um, but there's, there's more to it. it. It has to do with the surface area of the material as well. So if you think about nylon and polyester as being very sort of smooth and dense compared to cotton and linen, which are kind of fuzzy and open, more open weave. Um, Actually, this this is getting talked about because um, of what's a good what's a good fabric for masks, right? The, right. The N95 masks are, uh, you know, poly what is it, polyethylene, uh, and, it's a, and it's a tighter weave, and therefore, you know, uh, it has higher Well, I thought it wasn't woven at all. It's, I'm sorry, it's, it's non-woven, non you're right. Yeah, it's non-woven, it's just like compressed fibers. So yeah. they're very dense, yeah. Yeah, um, Lindsay Marr, my colleague at Virginia Tech, just published a paper. Um, I don't think it's, it's still in the preprint, stage, but she just published another one of those papers about the best mask materials. Um, I love her work. She is, <laughs> she's kicking butt. She's awesome. Um, okay, so, but we want to get back to this issue of, um, you know, the flammability of petroleum-based fabrics like nylon and polyester, which have high carbon-hydrogen content versus natural fabrics like cotton and rayon and linen. Um, they don't cover linen in this paper, but cotton and rayon. Rayon is, we've, we've talked about rayon on, in our clothing episode. Um, and the difference seems to be, okay, it's interesting though that the LOI, the limiting oxygen index is not 
a huge difference between say polyester at 20.5 and cotton at 18.4, but it seems to make an, enough of a difference that Ikea is using polyester is 20.5 and cotton is 18.4. So that's enough of a difference that the ignition, um, which is the, uh, it had to do with smoldering and um, ignition, you know, so the LOI determines that is the way I understand it. And then according to this paper, now, if we think about, you know, how hot it burns, um, the more petroleum content, the more carbon and hydrogen, then it's going to burn hotter. It's, it's going to burn at a higher temperature at peak heat release rate is PHRR. And then there's also the heat release rate, which is higher for um, these synthetics. So the synthetics have this higher PHRR and heat release rate and heat release capacity. So that means that actually cotton doesn't burn as hot. In, in that sense, it's less flammable because so I it's already to... oxidized. Yeah. Go ahead. Kind of explain that whole idea of for a chemical reaction to take place you have to get over an energy barrier. You know, I, I was worried when I was a child, uh, when I heard about spontaneous combustion, you know, I guess something can spontaneously combust, but there was this, there was this myth going around that, you know, that you could spontaneously combust. <laughs> and, people and, would. Yeah. And it made sense, you know, it's like you realized, oh, well, you're made out of, you know, carbon that, well, apparently. So I, I was worried that spontaneous combustion was a real thing. That's not a real thing because for combustion to take place, you have to have an input of, of energy. And we're so much made of water that it would take a lot of energy to make us spontaneously combust. Yeah, think about how hard it is to start a campfire when it's wet. <laughs> right, right. We're, we're bags of water, so we're not going to spontaneously combust. But um, combustion requires an activation energy input to, to get the molecules off their keisters. So when but when combustion takes place it releases energy so the more energy released by every round of combustion reaction that energy being dumped into the environment right there where all the rest of the uncombusted fabric is makes the other fabric begin to combust so the more energy released at a time the more it's going to contribute to that flame so a low peak heat release rate, rate of joules of energy going into the area per second means uh, less, that contribute, a lower heat release rate contributes to less flammability. So because so much heat is released at the, per second for the petroleum-based stuff, the, you know, the more flammable it is. I don't know. Right. And the peak, if we want to talk about that peak, why is there a peak? The peak is, I, I think of the peak the way that you think of like terminal velocity. There's only, the, you know, like when you're falling through the air. It can only go so air, fast. You, 
it can only go so fast. Exactly. You can only go so fast. Uh, and, and, you know, the peak, I think probably has to do with how fast. So this it's process that this, yeah. that this paper it's, is, is, is being able to model and being able to study really well is this idea. I think people don't, yeah, I didn't understand it before that the solid is not what burns. What burns is what has been volatilized. The, volatile. the idea that you have to thermally degrade a thing, you know, add heat into it enough that little pieces of it break off into gas phase combustible molecules. And right. that is what burns. It's not so, 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 you know, that there's a limit to how fast that can happen. Just like there's a terminal velocity you reach when you fall out of an airplane. And yeah. So, and so that, that rate is faster, that terminal velocity of how fast something is burning, a higher peak heat release rate is, a, is more heat per second going into the area. Great. Yeah. I think this all fits, fits what our understanding of the chemistry of these fabrics is very nicely. Then I thought I'd, I'd just touch on these, these two different um, flame retardants that this paper, Yang paper, talks about because they're not brominated, they're not chlorinated. Um, there's one of them is a mixture of sodium hypophosphite, which is an inorganic material. And um, it's, I looked up the, the uh, <clears throat> toxicity and it's non-irritant to the skin and eyes of rabbits. It was non-toxic in rats after daily administration for two weeks and it did not show teratogenic potential in developmental studies of rats. This is all from PubChem. Um, teratogens. Teratogens are toxins to development of a fetus in utero. So people may not have heard that term before. Most people heard carcinogens. Um, it didn't. It was also not mutagenic. And so these are these are all good things. This stuff seems pretty um, pretty benign as far as like if it came out of the furniture and was accumulated in the dust around the house and the baby was crawling around the floor, seems like it's pretty, pretty benign. And then it was mixed with succinic acid. Succinic acid, I mean, it's a very oxidized species, but it doesn't, it's kind of at the same really at the same net oxidation state as sugars, but apparently it doesn't, it's not as flammable as cotton. It's a little bit toxic, but they, this, this is like causes suppression of body weight gain in rats, but they feed it a, like two, 2% in their drinking water for weeks, <laughs> for 13 weeks. And, you know, they died, but it, it's I'm, really high levels. Succinic acid is going to be a, a familiar looking chemical to 
biological organism. It is a biological intermediate in the Krebs cycle. So it's it's a natural chemical. And they were giving it at very high levels. Tonight, we've talked about flame retardants with Dr. Arlene Bloom, a chemist and mountain climber. Um, She was instrumental in getting tris, bromo, and chlorophosphate and pentabromodiphenyl ether, um, PBDE, flame retardants, banned from children's products and furniture. And this, the way this happened was they changed the standard for these products from an open flame standard to a smoldering fire standard. And, and they showed that, you know, flame retardants aren't necessary to stop smoldering fires, which are the most common type. And Arlene was really instrumental in the policy and the driving force behind getting these, these um, laws changed. Then we talked about the difference between synthetic and natural fabrics in their ignition and the burn rates and the peak burn rates. So this has been This Week in Sustainability. My name is Felicia Etzkorn. My co-host is Jamie Ferguson. Good night, Um, Jamie. I I enjoy being a part of this. and, And I really enjoy getting to do this and then knowing that somebody else is doing all the editing on the end. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. Um, so like we like to say here, think about it. Don't overthink it, but do think about it. Happy Thanksgiving. Good night. Um.